welcome to the Busyness Podcast. My name is Emily Austin. I'm the founder and CEO of a London-based PR agency called Emerge. I'm passionate about launching and scaling small businesses and have been fortunate enough in my 13-year career to work with some of the most exciting, category-defining brands in the world. I started my business when I was 22 years old, fresh out of university. Since that time, the world has got louder. Our expectations have become greater and our lives have become busier. Fobbing friends off with the stock answer we've all become accustomed to, I'm so busy, is an attempt to compel, conflate and convince. But when did being too busy become a mark of status? Why is the goal to never have any free time? And just what the fuck is everyone doing? Are we setting unrealistic expectations for future entrepreneurs and business owners by encouraging them that a maniacal approach to diarising is the standard? This podcast aims to give you a realistic, detailed insight into the honest stories, the failures, the triumphs, the intricacies, the mistakes, the comebacks, the fuck-ups from those set to make their mark, the leaders, movers and shakers, trailblazers and game changers. We cover imposter syndrome, hiring and firing, call-out culture, anxiety, global growth, daily routines and knowing when to quit, choosing the best in the busyness to help you cut through the noise and optimise your success. Fresh off the back of a casual $25 million fundraise, Jules Miller found the time in her busy schedule to catch up with me about the enormous success of her company, The New Co, which is redefining supplements and the way we feel about them. Jules chatted to me about her own personal story, how The New Co was a business that started due to her own experiences with IBS and her need for a kinder, better supplement. Jules wants to fundamentally and positively impact our behaviours and attitudes towards supplements and believes that she's hired the best possible team around her to enable her to develop the best products. We chatted about mental health, running a business with your partner, moving to New York, learning on the job, and the incredible growth the brand has seen globally. Jules is hugely humble and hugely inspiring, and I hope you enjoy listening to her story. I'd love if you could just start by telling me more about the new co and what the brand mission is. Uh, so I started the Nuco back in 2017 um, after I'd struggled with IBS for about five years. Um, and that experience basically led me to taking supplements. And my grandfather, who was a sort of chemist and scientist, um, sat me down, sort of schooled me through all the ingredients I was consuming. And then together we came up with sort of the idea for the Nuco. Um, I think in a nutshell, the one thing that we really wanted to do was change people's relationship with supplements. And that's kind of like a bit of a quite a big mission because um, there was lots that we wanted to change. I think on a basic level, the industry was really struggling with the retention problem. So um, I think I think the repeat purchase rate was something around 30 percent. So basically, people just were not taking their supplements every day. Um, there was a lot of mistrust. And I think what, another thing that was interesting for me is that there was no brand loyalty. So even when we were talking to the consumers who were using supplements every day, they would buy a different brand each time they went to like the supermarket. 
So that's kind of like um, a, quite a big answer. Um, but essentially what we wanted to do is we wanted to develop a supplement brand that really delivered results that people could see and feel within 30 to 60 days um, through an experience that people really looked forward to and that was really engaging and really through a brand that people felt some sort of connection with. Um, so in a nutshell, yeah, that's that's what the NUCO is about. <laughs> And do you think that lots of people's relationship with supplements has always felt more medical? And then you've come into this space with it's not just a business, it's a brand proposition so that people are actually aligning with the values that you've set out rather than it always feeling like quite an abstract concept in terms of how the supplement market was structured before? I think I think the biggest problem with the supplement industry up until, well, really still today is that there's no regulation around it. So um, technically, I could launch a product with whatever, 20 different ingredients, and nobody is going to check that formula to check whether it's safe or to check whether I'm actually using the ingredients that I am saying I'm using. And I think that um, most consumers think that not every brand does that, but they know that a lot of brands do. So there's just that huge level of mistrust. And when we launched back in 2015, sorry, in, in 2017, but the study was carried out in 2015, um, there was an independent body that tested supplements from Whole Foods, CVS, basically all of the major retailers. And what they found was that four and five did not contain the ingredients that were on the label. So it was just, it's a much bigger problem that I think people realize. So I think that that's really what was broken. It was the mistrust. And when you don't trust um, a brand or you don't trust a product, you don't really engage. So I think that's what was broken. And then um, on the flip side, I think that, you know, when we're talking about UK and US, consumers are very, very different. Um, in the UK, when we launched, only like 35% of people were taking a supplement every day. So most people were still saying to me things like, well, supplements don't actually work. Like even the right. idea of, you know, us, you know, taking a supplement and then your vitamin D levels going up, people didn't think that that was even a possibility. And whereas right. in the US, around 80% of people are taking a supplement every day. So they understand the value of a supplement, but really for us, it was about educating on better ingredients and more transparency. Right. Was that one of the main reasons you decided to launch into the US first, just because the market was riper for, for the product? Yeah, I mean, I didn't have a huge, well, I didn't have any business experience, basically. And so I knew it was going to take a lot of funding um, to do what I wanted to do, because I wanted to work with the best labs, with the best ingredients, and make the best formulas. Um, and so when I raised funding, I knew that I really needed to make sure that every single dollar that I invested was, I was really going to make a return on investment in that dollar. And mm -hmm. here, I was going to have to spend a lot of those marketing dollars on just educating consumers on what supplements are and what they could do um mm. whereas like i said in the u.s it's a much what i would say a cheaper pitch um so really mm. that's why we went there it's an interesting choice when the u.s is renowned for being you know perhaps not in this category but pretty progressive and at times sort of three plus years ahead of us here in terms certainly in terms of wellness did you feel daunted when you went out there did you were you sort of turning up thinking I've got a great idea I need to raise some money and then we'll have a go or how much planning before you got on a plane and decided to go to the US and actually launch the business 
It was about a year. Um, so, but I think it's one of these things where I didn't know that I wanted to launch a company until I launched a company. But really, I'd been sort of gathering ideas and insights and sort of like parking them somewhere in my head for years and years and years. And, um, you know, I was I was working in the wellness industry. Um, I was working for a company called The Detox Kitchen here uh, until a woman called Lily Simpson, who's amazing. And then that's when I got IBS. And um, like I said, it was just it's just sort of happened quite organically and slowly. And then when I realized that there was an opportunity I then spent, I would say, about six months just really researching and really trying to understand the consumer and the category. And I think that customer insight, that singular customer insight that you could then translate into a brand proposition. And so um, I think that that really took the best part of the of a year. Um, I then managed to get a meeting with a buyer at Netta Porter. And I said, you know, I know that you guys are interested in wellness. I know that you've just launched a wellness category, but really the brands that you guys are launching right now uh, don't really speak to that Netta Porter and Mr. Porter consumer. Um, and I think even now, to be honest, the amount of brands in our category are like 10 at the most that are really dominating the category. And so they were like, okay, great. We'll launch you in whatever it was. I think it was like five months. And at the time I didn't even have a brand. We didn't have like I didn't have anything other than like five formulas that I developed with the lab that my grandfather had introduced me to. So yeah, I almost didn't have time to feel daunted or like scared. I was on a deadline and because I think because I had such little experience, I had like no fear whatsoever. So I went out to New York, I literally wrote down a list of like 20 people I wanted to speak to. I cold emailed everybody like, the founder of Netta Porter, the CEO of Equinox, the founder of Marlon and Getz. And I met with all these people and yeah, I just got on with it. I think if I did it now, I would probably be more scared. <laughs> yeah. There's like a naivety with not, totally. not really knowing. So when you went to meet Netta, the Netta Porter buyer, you said, I've got this hypothesis. This is what's happening in the market. I think I could offer something through your channels that would be beneficial to your audience. But I also don't have any sort of pictures or a proper brand, but um, please let me do it. And then I promise I will. Were they, did they give you a contract and then you had to go away? Or did they say, show us some product and, and we're interested? How did that relationship work? It was that they didn't send me a purchase order or anything like that, but it was a verbal like, okay, we're really into it. I mean, I put things together for them. Like I was working with a freelance designer and I was like, this is my vision. And, you know, it's going to be um, very sort of apothecary inspired and it's going to be very scientific, but we're really mimicking a lot of um, sort of the, the ritual of traditional beauty. And like I said, there just really wasn't anything like that at the time. So I think for them, it just must have clicked. And yeah, verbally, they just said yes on the spot. <laughs> That's awesome. Um, in terms of, you mentioned the the regulations in the industry being um, perhaps less rigid or non-existent. Part of your mission was to ensure that you were creating good, healthy products for people that did, weren't full of nasty things and that you were being really true to your ingredient list. Where did you find your information to inform you? Obviously, your career previously had, um, and, and having IBS, probably you'd done a lot of research for yourself mm -hmm. as well. But where did you find the information to make sure that you were 
um, using the right ingredients and, and creating these formulas in the way that you wanted to. Um, so I'm not a chemist or a nutritionist. So I very much was about, like I said, I landed on this customer insight and my job is really to build the business. And in all honesty, I think the first three years, my job was really fundraising. Um, and so what I did very early on is really try to identify the types of investors I needed around myself in order for me to be able to really execute my plan. And product development was, um, you know, right at the top of my list. So I got early funding from Unilever and uh, Morningside Group. Morningside Group are a billion dollar fund that traditionally are investing in like biotech, Harvard Medical School. Um, so I essentially had investors around the table that could really introduce me and open the doors into some of the world's biggest labs. And I think that that was probably like the number one biggest challenge because whilst I felt super confident, you know, sitting in front of like a buyer at Netaporter or maybe like, you know, an editor in New York, I think when you're speaking to, um, you know, your manufacturer and really all they really care about is, you know, how much money are you going to bring in your first year? And you're there saying, well, I need 500 units. So, you know, I think that's a, a much harder pitch. Um, so, so yeah, getting, getting the right people around, around the table was um, the most important thing. And, um, you know, today we really do work with the five best labs in the world. And um, we've been very fortunate. We also obviously have like an in-house team, um, you know. And, and so I think for us, it's about making sure that, from the top down, we've always had the best team round the table in order for us to develop these products. And I want to talk to you about fundraising because I think for a lot of people listening who are starting businesses, that always feels like quite a scary space. It's quite male dominated. The idea of um, the actual transaction and the complexity of contracts and shares and working out how much the business is worth and working out how you protect yourself when you go through those funding rounds, you know, how you pick between angels in the early stage or institutional investors, are people going to have the option to follow their money? All that kind of stuff is quite complex. Did you have a knowledge about that before you started talking to people to try and fundraise? No, I'd never spoken to an investor before. Um, but I really love the experience. I really encourage people to, especially women, to not feel fearful um, and to really get a good understanding of what they need, what they want, and what they're not going to give up, or what I always think like, what would I have to lose for me to feel like when I wake up in the morning, I go to work, I feel like this isn't worth it because it's such a huge sacrifice. So, you know, it's such a privilege and it's also such a huge sacrifice. And so, I think, um, for me, I had literally written down a list of things that I'd never want to give up, that I want to be in control of. So I want to make sure that I'm always in charge of hiring people because people really are your business and it makes up your culture. Um, product development, because I've always had wacky ideas. Um, you know, we've, yeah, we've gone from launching probiotics to fine fragrances to skincare and it's worked, but there really wasn't a blueprint for anything like that for us so um product development is something that I've always been very passionate about and then obviously brand I think you know back in 2017 I was so adamant about making sure that we were sourcing ingredients ethically and it meant that some of our ingredients were eight times the price of a standard ingredient or using sustainable packaging um, and it meant that you know sometimes that would take a hit on our margins because shipping is more expensive so 
you know, I think that us being able to really own what our brand mission is and that how that is then filtered through the business is something, again, that was super important to me. So those were the things that I knew I couldn't lose. And then I had to just get comfortable with the things that you do have to give up and you do have to give them up because, you know, these people are joining you as partners and you just need to make sure that you're aligned on the big things. And um, I can get super comfortable with things like that, to be honest with you. I think the other thing that I would thoroughly recommend is two things. Have a plan. Um, You don't have to stick to it, but have a long-term plan as to when you're going to sell the business. Because when you're pitching out for investment, that's the thing that you need to be really crystal, crystal clear on with these investors is, this is the opportunity. This is our proposition. This is what the next five or however many years it is that you're thinking the journey is going to be. These are the potential acquirers. This is the multiple up by which they, they're acquiring businesses. And this is the structure of the sort of, um, this is a revenue structure of those businesses. So in our case, it was omnichannel businesses and they sort of sell at X times multiple. So I think if you have that clear path, faster you can pitch it very clearly. Uh, but then secondly, you can really dictate how much money you need to raise at each stage, um, how much equity you are happy to give out to new investors, and really what are the revenue numbers that you need to hit in order for you to get those valuations. And are your investors, I know you mentioned um, Unilever, but did you specifically pick American investors to help with the American launch in terms of those investors having insights into the market or did you want a spread globally? So I did a sort of an angel round, um, which actually did include a New York VC, which I can talk about in a minute. Um, but most of the angels were, again, people I just needed like advice from. So the MD of the first lab we worked with, um, it meant that we could pick up the phone to him and say, production's late, please help me. <laughs> Um, and yeah, yeah, so have a word, have a word type thing. Um, yeah, the founder of the PR agency we're working with in New York, um, Sean Sutherland, who just sold Mio to the Hut Group, Rob Forshaw, who um, used to run MC Saatchi, and he really helped with sort of introducing us to some of the most incredible branding agencies and um, the company who does all of our packaging. So it's almost like I created an incubator around myself. Um, and then we also raised from a fund called Victress Capital in New York, and they are female-led and they only really invest in female-led uh, companies, and they've made some really amazing investments. And they were amazing. Like They introduced me to our, um, the, the law firm that we work with in New York. They actually helped us um, really set up the business there because we're a, we were originally a UK limited company with a US subsidiary. So they really helped with sort of that setup. Um, and then after that, that was our, uh, sort of, like I said, angel round. And then we raised 1.5 million a few months after we launched, like three months after we launched. Um, and that was when Unilever came in. I want to ask you a few more questions about launching into the US. So one of my more contemporary experiences was I worked with, um, Huel for five years with Julian and we launched into the US. So that was fascinating. And I think the first the first time we ever thought about launching that, I went over to, to America and I literally had the product in my suitcase and obviously it got confiscated immediately because it's powder. And the complexities of, aside from having to change the formula because Americans have a different taste palette, so there had to be one additional ingredient eventually to, to change the taste, 
also just the fulfillment um, in terms of efficiency and having the product on the ground there. Did you have to, I know you talked about having sort of these five um, factories and suppliers, but was that challenging to have to figure out, particularly in the US, where those were going to be and ensure that the product was being shipped globally, but that you had local supply and that you could fix problems if you had too many orders or issues with product arriving that was um, imperfect or the packaging was broken. What what was that like in terms of figuring out that issue? It was like a nightmare for like four months. Um, I just, yeah, logistics and operations. I like, it's really funny when you set up a business, all the things that you think are going to be easy are really hard. And then all the things that you think are going to be hard are not, not so bad. Um, but yeah, we, we were still working with the lab in Cambridge. So we were manufacturing everything here. And then we um, were shipping everything out there. But we own, we literally only did that, like I said, for like three months. So we had UK and US packaging. Obviously, our warehouse would always send the UK packaging out to the US and it would get stopped. And, you know, when you first launch, you have like very little stock. So, yes, it was a nightmare. But we moved production to the US pretty quickly. So as soon as we really raised that seed round, um we moved production so we had production in the uk and production in the us everything being manufactured um near new york ish because i wanted to go and sort of spend time with the labs um and yeah we just had two warehouses so that was something absolute nightmare for three or four months um but we sort of sorted it quite quickly and you see you did a a smaller pre-seed with angels and you did a one and a half million um seed you've just done a 25 million series b what was your series a uh nine million do you ever feel overwhelmed by the idea of having to distribute that much money with the view that you've committed to a certain multiple return for the investors uh daunted not really i think i think if you'd asked me that question when we first started i would have been like yeah, what the, you know, when you're pitching out for £150,000 and you think that that is going to last you forever because it's so much money because, you know, at the time mm. there's like £1,000 in your bank account. Yeah. Um, you know, I think that um, as you get bigger and you hire more people, you enter more markets, you only really raise, you know, a certain amount of money when you're fairly confident in your strategy and really all of the economics are working. Um, so for us, you know, we've always worked, towards profitability. Um, I think that's been something that I've been very thankful for is the fact that I sort of started in the UK working in a company like the Detox Kitchen that was, you know, so hyper-focused on being profitable from the get-go. Whereas really, I think the experience in the US talking to some of the sort of more traditional VCs is almost like you just need to get scale and grow, 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 grow. And it doesn't matter how much, you know, customer acquisition is actually going to cost you. Um, Just keep going. And, you know, that's something that we've always sort of rejected. So um, I think if I was on that train, I literally wouldn't be able to sleep. I hear of like, you know, some incredible companies that have made it through and obviously are hugely successful like Hims, um, but they burnt $75 million in their first year. Then I wouldn't be able <laughs> to, to handle it. Yeah, that's a, that's a stressful bank statement. That's a, yeah, that's not how we operate at the Duco at all. Um, we are like, we, we really invest in the things that are really meaningful to us. So like I said, product mm-hmm. development, like supply chain, all of that stuff 
you know, I think it's definitely an investment, but we know that that is what our, why our customers choose us. And, you know, our retention rate is really the backbone of the business. We've got a 70% repeat purchase rate, which went up to 80 throughout COVID. Um, and that's because of our ingredients and our formulas and the efficacy. So that's an investment. Outside of that, nothing gets me hot under the collar because we don't waste money in that way. <laughs> yeah. Well, to your point earlier about, you know, when you're thinking about investment, what are you willing to let go of? It's also like how much stress are you willing to take on? How totally, much pressure totally. are you willing to put yourself under to hit the targets in the time frame? Because you're essentially using that money for growth so it's yeah. like how much growth are you capable of <laughs> predicting that you can handle exactly. which is a difficult question if you haven't ever experienced that journey before I, I think like making sure that you've got the right people around the table and that you guys are, are aligned and that you have the type of relationship where you could call them and say listen we've increased our Facebook spend by 25% it's worked for the last 10 months but this month it's not working and if we continue to increase it it's going to burn through a lot of cash so we're going to turn it off and we're going to see a dip in revenue numbers, but we're not going to burn through the money. Like you just need to have a type of investor who's going to go, that's a good idea. And that they're not, you know, there's obviously lots of different types of investors. Our bigger investors on the cap table are family offices. And that, that's really how they operate. They want to, obviously, they want to get to the big numbers. We want to get to the big numbers, but they always also want to de-risk. Um so whereas really if you're going with a lot of more like the traditional VCs in New York, they have a slightly different view. Um, so, yeah, that, that's sort of like how, how we're operated. But I think you're completely right. I think so many companies out there really define their success based on how much money they're raising. And I think we've seen so many companies really fail after having raised heaps amount of cash. So, um, yeah. yeah, that's certainly not not how we operate at the NUCO. Mm. You have a co-founder. Tell me a bit more about that dynamic. We hear a lot about never working with your friends. We hear a lot <laughs> about picking someone who has a completely different skill set to you so that you don't have to hire that role and you can split split the sort of functions within the business. Tell me a bit more about how it works with you and your co-founder. Um, we've, we've actually got loads of people in the company who are friends and family. So, um, my first hire was a woman called Flo, um, and she worked at Pi Skincare in the UK. We were sort of friends because I was working at the Detox Kitchen. I pick her brain all the time about launching into the US and eventually sort of begged her to come and join us. And she turned me down, of course. And I begged her and then eventually she moved out there with us. Um, about a few months later, maybe a year later, uh, my partner, so Charlie, my husband, he, he'd always been in the background, you know, he'd always, he, he set up another business himself. So, um, he'd always helped, but, uh, we basically made the decision that he would join us as co-founder full time. And it was absolutely the best decision that I've ever made. Um, Flo and I are very similar. And Flo, although she's done pretty much every role in the business, she's now dedicated more to sort of market insights and product development. Charlie is um, the complete opposite of me. He is amazing at financial planning. He manages all of our operations and tech team. He's a very, very considered individual. He's, I always say, like, he's just the best boss. Like, you could sit with him and really 
you know, spend time with him and he would really listen to you and take the time with you. Um, and I definitely do that, but I'm more of like an energy person and like, I've got the big ideas. And if somebody tells me that it's going to take six months, I want to do it in three months and he'll make it happen in four and a half months. So, you know, I think it's, um, I, I love it. I've got, like I said, I've got my cousin working there. I think what you have to do though, is you have to sort of leave your cousin, friend, husband titles at the door and you really need to bring in people who have the right skill sets for the role if they're not the right people for the role you're absolutely going to have issues um so they have to be right and then secondly you have to be able to communicate in the same way that you would communicate to anybody else in the company um if you can do that then it's amazing working with your friends and family yeah do you know i i completely agree with you i think that the trick is you have conversations in a professional way that you would with anyone else. So if you've got feedback, you do it in the appropriate way. It's not sort of at home or in the pub, it's in the right environment and you move things through the usual channels. You don't expect them to pick up their phone late at night if you wouldn't expect that for someone else. Exactly. And I, and I think that works really well. I think it's the moment you start treating them like a mate or family or whatever that it becomes quite difficult probably for them as well just to understand boundary setting yeah um yeah so yeah that's definitely good advice um you one of the brand missions is that or, or the main brand mission is that you want to redefine supplements and and change the behavior of people in terms of how they use them you launched the business in 2017 what was going on in that space when you launched in terms of either competition or um window in terms of you having the opportunity to do something before lots of other companies decided to pile in so i think at the time um beauty the concept of beauty from within was really only just launching i think in i think really there was like welco and main juice and that was pretty much it and then in the uk that was the collagen gold supplement that they sold in boots and literally that was it and so um I knew that that was going to take off. I think that working in the wellness industry, the idea of what you're putting in your body, you know, the diet that you're following, how much water you're drinking, the idea of that not having an impact on your skin. <laughs> um, I don't know. It was just so obvious, but um, funnily enough, not a lot of people had caught on to it yet. So that was really what was starting to take off. Um, I think what was interesting for me was to actually define what health meant and um, even today, you really have quite a fragmented sort of health and wellness industry. You have physical health up here, you have mental health here, you've got beauty down here. And one of the things that I've always felt very passionate about and something that my grandfather was a real advocate for was that actually health is an ecosystem. That's what we always say at the NUCO. And when you look at the de definition of health by the World Health Organization, it's a complete state of physical, mental, environmental and social well-being and not merely the absence of disease. And that's really what we wanted to do if, you know, we really wanted to educate people on the fact that if you have gut health issues, you know, it's going to impact your skin. If you have um, a really stressful lifestyle, it's going to impact your immune system. And so we sort of like tore up the rule book of um launching into different categories and being at the risk of sort of confusing people. And we really led with this idea of our goal is to help improve your health, whether that's the health of your skin or the health of your gut. And we are going to develop the best products 
and um, they're going to be absorbed in the most efficient way. And perhaps that's through a fragrance, through your factory system, or perhaps that's, you know, through your gut. When you launched initially, how many products did you launch with? We launched with five products and they were basically all the products that I needed. So we launched with um, a product called D-Blake, which is still our sort of bestseller today. And we launched with our probiotic, which again is another huge seller for us. Um, and then essentially what I wanted to do is we wanted to launch collections almost every season. And the reason that we wanted to do that was because we really wanted the time to educate people um, on, on the products and on the science. Mm-hmm. We didn't want to launch like a huge collection right from the get-go. Um, so we launched five products and then moving forward, we, we sort of uh, lowered the amount of products we would launch in each collection. So sometimes it was one, sometimes it was three. And was the purpose of those launches to acquire new customers or was it, you know, in your case, you sort of needed five, those five products. Was it expanding the options for the initial customers or was it finding, you know, new customers and treating additional issues? Um, I think in the beginning, like I said, I think for us, it was going back to that mission of health as an ecosystem. And so we mapped out these 10 need states and the 10 need states essentially correlated to um, what we say. It's like the 10 biggest threats to our health. So there were things like mental health in there, pollution, um, like, and then there were obviously things that people were really talking about, like pigmentation on their skin. It wasn't really that talked about. Uh, prior to our launch so we'd mapped out these 10 um, need states from day one Um, and some of them are designed to acquire new customers some of them are what we call foundation products so they're really sort of subscription focused products that our loyal customers just add to their basket Um, but yeah I mean our business today is like I said it's it's really based on retention it's not so much based on like just acquiring new and mm. we're mostly a subscription-driven business as well. So, um, yeah, we, we sort of just focus all of our products around that strategy. The wellness space has received quite a lot of criticism in the past, particularly from the US of being quite white and blonde and, uh, I guess, for affluent people you guys have made a real effort in the language you use the way you talk to people the imagery you use on social media and in your campaigns to create a more diverse environment in terms of accessibility do you think that the industry is being forced to evolve and what are you guys doing to to continue to do that yeah, I mean, when um, when we launched, I remember reading an article in the New York Times um, that was called Smash the Wellness Industry. And it talked about the wellness industry being diet culture in disguise. And I couldn't agree more. I think that wellness for so long was about the way that we looked. And, you know, it was really just like the cabbage soup diet rebranded. And it just made, made people feel a little bit more bougie because they were doing clean eating rather than uh, the cabbage soup diet. So I, um, we definitely wanted to go against the grain with that. And that's why it was so important for us to talk about mental health from the get-go. We launched our, our first big out-of-home campaign that we ever did. This is one of the risks that I was <laughs> talking about. Before we'd ever launched a campaign where we were talking about product, the first campaign we ever did was around mental health. Um, and it was because I thought that the wellness industry was being so detrimental to people's mental health 
even though they were pitching this idea of health. Um, so I think, yeah, I think for us, if you're, if you're really going to go out there and you're really, your mission is really to help people feel better, then you really need to completely change the way that the industry looked, felt and communicated with consumers. And I think that, um, yeah, I, I think that the fact that it was very elitist and it was very white um, and it definitely had like a look and feel, we really wanted to change that. Um, I think it was funny because in the beginning in New York, we would have meetings with publications like High Society and we would be like just desperate to do something with them because they'd never done anything with a wellness brand before. And I remember speaking to one of the guys there and he was like, oh, you know, like I'm not really into wellness and blah, 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 blah. And then um, we were having breakfast and he was like, oh, I'm just going to order a green juice because I'm doing intermittent fasting. And I was like, okay. And then I was like, oh, you know, what are you doing later? And he was like, oh, well, my wife is a yoga teacher. So I do that five times a week. And it was funny because it was more like he, he totally was into wellness, but he just wasn't into what the wellness industry, the image that the wellness industry fed him. Mm. Um, so yeah, yeah like, he didn't want to subscribe to that no. sort of language because of what it, what it represented. Yeah, and neither. I mean, it's the same with me. Like I, people expect me to be really quote unquote healthy, and you know I'm just human. Sometimes I'm, you know, I'm obviously have a lot of experience, um, and. You know, I, I would say that I'm healthy, but my definition of healthy is probably completely different to um, mm. other people's definition of healthy. So, um, yeah, we definitely thought that there was an opportunity with that. I think with COVID, I think all of it has changed. I think the topic of, you know, mental health is completely changed in the context of physical health. And I think we've all learned actually how important it is for us to invest in ourselves. Do you think for a brand launching now in 2021, the mental health conversation is a very difficult thing to get into because it's been slightly hijacked by virtue signalers and yeah. people who want to be part of the dialogue and also that the scale is so broad and personal and emotive and flammable in terms of people's own experiences. Do you think it's a difficult dialogue for a brand launching now to, to take some sort of ownership or participation in uh i think it's an interesting time um and i think in moments like this where there's going to be like a fundamental shift in communication there's always going to be like those growing pains that us cynical people like myself can find quite annoying but i think in reality you know where we're going to get to is really sort of communicating in a far more compassionate way and I think that that can only really be a good thing. Um, you know, to be completely transparent, this is the type of thing that we've always felt so passionate about. And like I said, we've invested in and we have had like bigger companies that one big company completely rip off one of our mental health campaigns. But by completely rip us off, I mean like they had images of our actual billboards they superimposed their creative that looked basically the same as ours, but just removed our logo. But they didn't even buy the billboards. They were just posting the pictures of them on their Instagram. And I thought that that was a really interesting experience because when we did our campaign, um, you know, like I said, for us, it was like a brand defining moment because for us, it was all about opening up the conversation. And we couldn't believe 
what came off the back of it. I mean, the engagement rate of some of our posts were like 11%. It was insane. Whereas this company who was huge, um, they were, they were literally getting like 300 likes on their posts. And I think that the reason for that was because there was no heart in it and there was no like real intention. And so, you know, I think I welcome more brands getting involved and I welcome more brands really, um, investing and giving back to charities um but i think that if you don't do it in the right way i think people will see through it anyway yeah it's quite a discerning modern consumer now isn't it and i think it's so personal i mean it's it's there's still a long way to go with the dialogue but i think people genuinely are excited and pleased and encouraged that brands are talking about it i think it's very difficult for businesses that clearly don't uh, embody all those values across the company the authenticity piece I think is probably the strongest in a dialogue around mental health and clearly it's been integral to the DNA of your business from the beginning so you've probably got more permission to talk about it which is why the engagement levels are much higher when you do Um, and I and you know the products are genuinely helping people manage their well-being so so in many ways sort of making making improvements for them we hear a lot about social media and the impact of that on people's mental states do you have a good relationship with social media do you use it personally obviously professionally for the business you do but what what's your relationship like with social media i think personally it's fine i think professionally um it actually, it's really it's a funny experience because we obviously invest in Facebook and Instagram ads. And um, sometimes we get comments on our ads that can be racist and or just just vile stuff on our, some of our ads. And I think a lot of founders can go slightly crazy and just like, jump on the comments and reply and I think for me that's probably the nastier side of social media um it's basically just the trolls um and it's a reminder that there are people like that in the world Mm. so that bit's really crap um I think for me personally I I have like quite healthy boundaries um there's a couple I, I never like pitch myself against other founders or other companies because I'm so focused on what we're doing and um, there's so much room for competition. There's so much room, you know, for other brands to enter the space. And when somebody else is doing better than us, it's great because it just means that there's more opportunity for all of us. So um, yeah, for me personally, I'm, I'm not bothered, but I don't know. I feel like if you went to a restaurant and you didn't like the food or you didn't like the look of the menu, would you turn around and just spew hatred to your waiter? You wouldn't. And I think that sometimes when these people are leaving these horrific comments on some of our ads, I'm like, do you guys know that we are, we're, they're like real people that work in customer service and they're real people that manage social media. And, you know, I don't know. This, it's just like, a, it's a really weird experience. Yeah, well, I guess it's so faceless, isn't it, that people can write these comments. I mean, you have to have a profile, obviously, but you know, people set up all sorts of fake profiles. But it does seem astonishing that someone would have that 
feelings that strong that they would want to publicly give that sort of I mean it's not really even feedback at that point. it's not feedback it's It's not it's not like if it was a customer who wasn't happy with their products like of course we would want to look after them it's just more people commenting on the models that we're using or like you know it's it's just yeah it's just nasty trolls really and I think that one of the reasons that we are able to talk about you know racial tension in the US one of the reasons we're able to talk about things like mental health is because like internally we talk about the Nuco being like a love company like everybody works super hard there's loads of structure in the team doesn't feel like it's just a group of friends but it certainly feels like it's family because everybody loves the mission everybody really believes in what we do so I think when we see stuff like that it probably stings us maybe a bit more uh, than maybe some other companies I don't know yeah, and I guess you're all united in that because yeah. you all feel it. Yeah. yeah. Gosh, that's extraordinary, isn't it, that people still continue to 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 project that kind of vile hatred through social media. It is a very strange sort of echo chamber of some of the worst opinions that you can find. Do you do you is that more impactful for you than if someone says this is the best product I've ever used? No, 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 feel no, like no. The- no. Like reviews are is are literally what get me through the day. And like it's the same for everybody in the company. We have a Slack channel, like all of the like good reviews go up there and we absolutely love them. And um, I mean, we did an Ipsy partnership recently um, and we had 20, 21,000 4.5 star reviews. And we were like, oh, wow. everybody in the company was just so excited. And, you know, there's nothing because like, like, like I said, we we do have structure around the work that we do. And, you know, it's all about conversion rates and click through rates and repeat purchase rates. But at the end of the day, it feels so good knowing that all of that work is really going towards you know, somebody who's had IBS for five years who then takes our probiotic and now feels like they could go out for dinner with their friends. And I know that sounds so lame and like it's not a big deal, but people send us notes saying that their lives have really changed. Mm. Um, and, and we, you know, everybody loves it. It is like mm. by far the best thing about working at the Nuco. Well, I guess you changed your life with the products that you really needed. So being able to share that and seeing that vision become something that's not just impactful for you but can now be shared with everyone else that's sort of that's the dream isn't it right that it's actually working and it's actually improving the lives of the people who are who are investing in you by buying the product exactly um it's very difficult to talk about running a business without referencing covid Mm -hmm. it's been an extraordinary year you moved back from the u.s in a covid year and um raised the series b and are looking at expanding across europe and certainly expanding in the uk can you tell me a little bit more about how the last year's been for you i I presume preventative healthcare and also general well-being was was a focus um but what what's the last year as a business owner been like for you um it's been great i mean it's been challenging but um, I think you learn the most in, in moments like this. I think from a team perspective, I think we doubled our team size direct, throughout COVID. So we had like half the team that we'd never met. And so we really had to invest in trying to build a culture online. Um, and I think our culture is the best it ever has been. So um, I think that, that that's been great. I think we've been able to bring in some really incredible people. I think from a top line perspective again it's been really good for us because 
everybody has started to invest in their own health. I think here in the UK, having like the NHS actually saying anybody who's at risk needs to be taking a vitamin D supplement and them actually prescribing, I think they prescribe like 2 million doses. So I think here the awareness that actually you should be investing in these products and when you're taking a vitamin, you should be thinking about the ingredients. Um, it's been great for us. I think on the flip side, you know, the lead times for some of our products are a year, which is nuts because that's not it makes managing your cash flow an effing nightmare which is yeah. you know why you might have to raise slightly bigger round of funding and and whatnot so mm. you know thing, things definitely change um costs have gone through the roof um just from a sort of shipping perspective so um it's been operationally definitely a challenging process um shipments have been like three months late we've been out of stock so, you know, it's been, but I, you know, I think any business owner would rather be dealing with those issues than thinking, you know, actually our business has shut down and we're not generating any revenue yeah. and we're having to let people go. So, yeah. And have you got, is your team all over the world or have you got a much bigger team in the US or how, what's the split? Yeah, we've got, we've got a team in the US and in the UK. Um, and then we also have some amazing people that we've hired that have moved around the world um so yeah I think we'll probably continue working just completely flexibly we've got an office here in Spitalfields um people get the option of coming in two days a week if they want to there's certain teams that like really need that time like the creative team really need that time to sort of bounce off each other like the operations team are so happy to not have to spend any time with me (laughs) a week so I'm not jumping on them and distracting them and coming up with crazy ideas um, yeah, they're like, we will reject the two day a week rule, but thank you for offering. Yeah, it to I us. think they just come in where they need a bit of a pick me up and I can just have a bit mm. of a laugh with them. Um, but I, we've never worked more efficiently ever. And so, and I think that just comes with having the right people in your team. If you don't really trust somebody yeah. to be working, then maybe they're not the right person. And we don't have anyone like that. Like everybody's amazing. So, um, yeah, it's, it's been, it's been a good experience all in all. What are the most valuable investments that you've made in the business and and where have you wasted money? Oh my gosh. Ah, million dollar questions. Um, I think investments that were really scary that I'm really glad we did are things like our pop-ups. So we did pop-ups really early on when nobody knew us in New York, essentially. We did, we've done three and we're going to roll out more retail stores in the UK and in the US. Um, so we did one for a month, another one for like a three months and then another one for a year. And, um, we just learned so much getting that FaceTime with customers that we then actually applied to our D2C. So that was a great experience. I think in terms of, uh, wasting money, we definitely had a time period. It was a short time period, but it was a time period where we were just like following a model and customer acquisition costs were going up and we were just following the model and not reforecasting. And I think it was probably like the lack of experience by end where I just thought you get, you know, you get your financial model signed off by your investors and you need to just follow it through and you can't put up your hand and say, actually, we need to change the strategy. So, um, you know, we burnt through a bit of cash then, but but it's not, you know, not so much where, 
we're in trouble or anything. It was just a handful of months. Um, and at the time it was like our split between, um, like paid basically paid growth versus brand was around like we're spending like 65 percent of our revenues on growth marketing so a lot and we essentially just completely flipped that model and so we just started to reinvest back into more of our brand channels um things like emails always performed really well for us at much cheaper costs so you know i just we just flipped the model and then it started working again and actually now our economics are really efficient and we're sort of able to invest more into facebook and instagram um so yeah i think sorry that was a really long-winded answer no it's really it's really interesting i think you're absolutely right you get set on a course and it's like you know if you're waiting for it to change it's like you mentioned earlier if something's been performing for 10 months and then it doesn't in the 11th then the right decision is to potentially look at if that's stagnating moving it and not not sort of hoping that it will turn yeah um so yeah i think it's really good advice What's the best piece of advice that you've ever been given about building a business? Uh, I, well, I don't know if this advice was given to me, but it was something that I've learned along the way. It's your ability to have conviction in what you know mixed in with your ability to learn and take direction. I think that's been um, the most valuable thing that I've learned because if you're like me and you really want to surround yourself with a lot of people that can help, often they're all going to have completely different ideas and they're all going to want to pull you in a completely different direction. And you really need to be so confident in your insight and your brand proposition and your strategy in what you know, but also be willing to sort of take advice that makes sense for your strategy, what you know about your customer. I think if you have that ability to do that, um, you will make it really far. I think on the flip side, if you don't have any conviction, I think you can flip flop and go into a hundred different ways. Or if you have two conviction, you can have like the tunnel vision and not listen to anyone. Um, so I think that that would be probably my, my biggest bit of advice. What have you found to be the biggest myth or assumption about running a business and has it stacked up? I think some of the other ones are, yeah, things like you become rich immediately, which is a a myth that everyone figures out on day two of becoming an entrepreneur. Yeah, that's, that's the opposite. I think also people think that like, I have 25 million pounds in my bank account. I'm like, no, the more money you raise, the less access you have. Yeah. Like, this is what people don't realize. I'm like, if you want to, you don't need to raise all of this money. You can go out and um, run a profitable company. You can take out dividends and you can make loads of money that way. Um, I, I do think it's probably all around fundraising. I had absolutely no contacts. I'd never spoken to an investor and I knew no, I had one friend in New York who, you know, mm-hmm. wasn't an entrepreneur or anything. So, um, if you have the right idea, if you've done your homework, if you are looking at the right category and if you're taking certain things into account, um, you'll be able to fundraise. Um, mm-hmm. I was a, Latino woman in New York with no contacts and I would manage to do it. So it really means that anybody could do it if you've got the right idea and you've got the right strategy. Hmm. So much of what you've talked about today is about you teaching yourself, learning, figuring stuff out, not being afraid to ask questions. 
how do you make sure that you keep learning? Do you listen to podcasts? Do you read? Do you um, expose yourself to business owners who are doing different things? What's your process to keep to keep learning? Yeah, I think for me, it, it has always been about, about speaking to founders, um, other founders. I think that also speaking to people that are two years away from where you want to be versus also people that are like 10 years away from where you want to be. Um, that's been the most important thing. I think it definitely gets harder as the business scales because my role really changes. It definitely has changed really in the last year where it's been more about, you know, um, spending more time really with the team rather than going out and pitching. And so, you know, that changes and you need to make sure that you're carving out time so that you can carry on growing and so that you can be the best leader that you can be. But yeah, for me, it's always been face-to-face meetings with other founders. The podcast is called The Busyness Podcast, right? We're all encouraged to be the most productive that we can be. Um, We're supposed to be fit and healthy, have good jobs, have good relationships, travel lots, have interesting breakfasts to post on social media. (laughs) If you had an extra hour in the day, what would you use it for? Uh, probably like Pilates. <laughs> I'm, I haven't worked out properly in like many, many years. I, when I started, I was, I was working out like six times a week. Um, mm. and I really struggled to, for it to fit in my day now where, but you know, I eat super healthily and I do other things like meditation and whatnot. So I would probably dedicate it to either working out or spending time with my family. Um, I think, I spoke to a founder recently who was like really beating herself up about not being able to do X, Y, Z. I think you just have to like accept that you're not going to be really good at everything and you really need to dedicate your time to the things that you're really good at um, and the things that are, you know, really going to propel your business. And I think in doing that in the early years, you sacrifice, you do have to sacrifice a lot. And I became what I would think is a bit of a shit friend and I, you know, wasn't there for my family in the way that I would really, you know, had been when I, before I set up a business. So you make all of these sacrifices. Um, and I think now that we're like going into our fifth year and things have slightly changed, I think, you know, I'm, I'm in the position now where I can take a bit of a step back and go back to doing the things that really made me, me. Yeah, you're right. It's sort of, there's a little bit of a trade-off, isn't there? Depending what stage, what age you're at, where you live. You obviously moved countries, so yeah. there's a kind of very practical geographical uh, impact of that. Um, do you use things, do you use tools to help you organise your time or are you just naturally quite efficient in terms of moving through what you've got to get through in the day? Yeah, yeah I think I'm naturally quite here, there, everywhere. I mean, I obviously live by my calendar, um, mm. and I'm quite good as well structuring my, uh, week. So I know if I have a really important meeting, I'll clear two hours before then. I'm not going to not do anything for those two hours, but I'll, you know, do something that is going to be quite a mindless task so that I can preserve my mm. energy for that meeting. So, um, I think that's something that I found extremely important, particularly for pitching for investment. Again, I've got friends who will go and have like these crisis meetings with their operations team and then they'll walk into an investor pitch and try to sell them the dream, knowing that like their supply chain's on fire. (laughs) 
So, you know, I think planning your days around when you're going to need the most energy and being in the right mindset for it is super important. Yeah, great advice. What's next? What's next for the new co and what's next for you? Um, so, yeah, so, so obviously we've just raised this amount of funding. I think the really cool thing about the new investors is that the um, it's founded by an entrepreneur. He is the founder of um, European Climate Change Foundation. So all of the profits that come from his investment into the new co actually go into climate change research. And it's just amazing having somebody like that now as such a key stakeholder because we're really going to have access to so many different materials, experts. So whilst it's something that we've always done and always been passionate about, I think we're really going to be in the position to really be leading in the category when it comes to sustainability. Um, So that's something that internally we're super pumped about. Um, This isn't sexy, but just again, like thinking about how we're sourcing ingredients, we're sourcing more and more ingredients through um, community projects. So essentially through the cost of an ingredient, you're reinvesting in um, the healthcare of these communities or natural education. Um, So just things that we are all really passionate about that are connected to essentially packaging and product. And then um, just from a strategy perspective, we're launching into Australia, Asia, and then we've got a major retail launch happening in September throughout the US. So yeah, we're busy, busy. (laughs) Yeah, I was going to say that's a a pretty packed schedule. It's a pretty packed diary. Um, Jules, thank you so much for taking the time to talk to me today. I know you're busy. I mean, after that list, I'm sure you've got to get on and, and, and get on with it. But you're journey personally and professionally is incredibly interesting and the insights that you've shared no doubt will be very useful practically um, and inspirationally for many people listening at all different stages of their entrepreneurial journey so thank you very much for for taking the time today that's so kind thank you so much for having me emily Mm -hmm.